from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May 10th. Today, who belongs in East Jerusalem? Rethinking where the COVID economy leaves women. And a pandemic prom. The day didn't start well in Jerusalem. Police and security officials have been anticipating that this day was going to be one of a lot of clashes between Jewish demonstrators and Palestinians in the old city of Jerusalem. And sure enough, very early this morning, a crowd of worshipers at Al-Aqsa Mosque clashed with police. It's a little bit unclear exactly how that uh, encounter started, but it was quite violent. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. He spoke with producer Lena Mohammed early Monday morning. More than 200 Palestinian protesters were injured. Most of the injuries were were minor and seemed to be caused by the sponge-tip bullets that riot police used to disperse them. There was also tear gas and stun grenades, a lot of confusion, a lot of people running. Several people were hospitalized, and they think more is to come. There have been violent clashes in Jerusalem for a couple of weeks now. At the very beginning of Ramadan, the Muslim holy month, There were encounters between young Palestinian men in the evenings and police outside of the Damascus gate. Those were diffused after a couple of days when police sort of backed off and removed some of their security fencing from the area. But in the last several days, there have been even more pitched fighting. A group of some 70,000 worshipers came onto the Al-Aqsa Mosque Plaza on Friday morning. And later in the day after, after prayers, That erupted into conflicts that caused several hundred injuries to Palestinians. And a few Israeli police were also injured in that. There were reports that Israeli police actually entered not just the plaza surrounding the mosque, but the the house of worship itself. There was some video that suggested uh, some of the police rolled uh, flash grenades into the space. That was considered quite a provocation and a real escalation of police tactics. And there have been a lot of questions uh, about exactly why they decided to do that. I think there's going to be some investigations in that. The Israeli government is saying they're just trying to keep a volatile situation in hand. Palestinians uh, really say that they needlessly escalated with those kinds of, of tactics. I don't know the starting point of the clashes that occurred Monday morning, but everybody is very on edge and there's no question that any any sort of provocation from either side is likely to lead to more encounters and more violence. Mm. And where specifically is all of this happening in Jerusalem? Like, what is this area's significance? The old city of Jerusalem is an enclave of a couple of square miles surrounded by uh, a wall that was largely built during the Ottoman Empire. It's a spectacularly beautiful, you know, world heritage site. And it is the home of basically the three world religions, or it's extremely important to the three world religions. It's where the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is traditionally considered where Jesus was was crucified and buried. Um, Al-Aqsa Mosque is the third holiest site in Islam. And of course, it sits on this site of the 
Temple Mount, which Jews consider to, to be the seat of their religion, going back several thousand years. So everyone feels a very spiritual and emotional claim to this area, and that has generated, as it often does, a real pitched feeling of emotions on all sides. So this all started in a, a small neighborhood in East Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah. What's going on there? There's a fight going on in, in Sheikh Jarrah that's gone on for decades now, but may be coming to a head. Basically, it is a, a fight over who has rights to a group of houses in the middle of the neighborhood. For decades and decades, since about 1948 or shortly after, a group of Palestinian families have, have lived in these houses. There's a Jewish group funded at least by Jewish nationalist groups from, from Israel and outside of Israel that say they can prove that the property belonged to Sephardic Jews uh, in the early part of the 20th century. The case has gone through mm. the Israeli court system uh, for years and years. Now it is about to be decided once and for all by the Israeli Supreme Court. Most observers think the court is going to rule in favor of the Jewish claimants, and that has created very disturbing tension. Weeks of protests have unfolded, and it's really kind of reached a pitched emotional level. And, you know, in the middle of all this are just these four, I think it's four families in the immediate case, and dozens and dozens of family members who are facing the prospect of losing homes that they've had in their families for for decades, multiple generations. One of those family members is Mohammed Al-Kord. My name is Mohammed Al-Kord, and I'm talking to you from Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem. So for 49 years, we've been in this battle against these other organizations that have been claiming our lands as their own. And in 2009, well, in 2008, we saw the first batch of displacements. And so we did in 2009, our home, half of it was taken in 2009. And now settlers live in it and we're forced to share our home with settlers that are like stealing half of our home. So you said in 2009 they, they, the settlers took over half of your, your 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 house, right? So do I understand that correctly? Yeah. So like, like how, how? What do you mean how? Like is it an apartment building and there are different apartments in it and they just like walked in and took over? No. What happened was the Israeli forces, police, army, undercover forces blocked all of in all of the entrances to the neighborhood, which they've actually done today in twenty twenty one. But they did it in two thousand nine. They blocked all of the all of the ways that were leading to the neighborhood and they literally just stormed and blew up our gate, smashed our windows and literally threw us onto the streets and they started throwing our furniture onto the streets and it was the policemen, the, the soldiers and the settlers all working together to take our, our furniture and throw it into the streets. A few months before they threw us onto the street, they um, threw... Uh, the Rawi and Hanun family out of their homes and four in the morning, they were literally throwing their, their children from their windows, from their second floor windows onto the street. They were throwing their furniture, their, their fridges, their freezers onto the streets. I know it sounds crazy. And the problem with this, with the absurdity of this 
is the normalization of the term eviction that the Western media often uses. What's going on is not eviction. What's happening is displacement. Because when you think of eviction, you don't think of an entire army blocking off the entire city and blowing up your doors, tear gassing you, hospitalizing you, throwing a TV on your grandmother and causing her to go to the hospital. What's happening is brutal force being exerted against Palestinians forcing them to leave their homes for Israeli settlers to come and squat in these homes. I'm talking about settlers who will, who have set our tent on fire to prevent us from demonstrating against what they're doing to us. I'm talking about settlers who have stolen a literal playground that we have built for children in our yard, who have literally stolen, who have stolen the gate of our house. So that's what I mean. And I think it's, I understand why the question of how is a persistent one among many, many of the journalists that I talk to. Um, but because the, nobody listens to Palestinians, nobody really like will, will want to acknowledge what we're saying. It's like everything we say is hyperbole when it's not hyperbole. The situation that we're living under is hyperbolic. And there have been videos posted online from Sheikh Jarrah showing acts of violence like what Muhammad has described. Videos showing the settlers walking around with rifles on their side. Videos showing them attacking Palestinians' homes. In a statement over the weekend, the Israeli foreign ministry called the displacement of Palestinians a real estate dispute between private parties. They accused the Palestinian Authority of trying to turn the situation into a nationalistic cause in order to incite violence in Jerusalem. There are a lot of questions about who's directing the police to use such aggressive tactics as they they did Friday night. They use less aggressive tactics. Saturday and Sunday. Behind the scenes, we're aware that the office of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was instrumental in persuading a a very controversial right-wing politician from sort of uh, leaving his encampment, uh, sort of a temporary office that he had set up in the middle of Sheikh Jarrah, in the middle of this standoff between protesters and on both sides. So you kind of see signs where the government is doing what it can to keep the lid on things. What about the Palestinian Authority? Like, where does it stand in all of this? Well, I think it's important to divide the Palestinian response into into two parts. There's the, the Hamas uh, leaders of, of Gaza. They have been very outspoken. They've condemned the conflict. They have, as I said, um, allowed or facilitated the launch of some rockets out of the territory. Um, and the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah has certainly also condemned Israel and held Israel very much responsible for the escalation. Um, but it was just a few last, it was just last week when Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas canceled these planned elections, uh, first in 15 years that were going to take place um, this spring and summer. And that has uh, been cited as one of the causes of anger among Palestinians who are quite frustrated here as Ramadan comes to the end. So um, his his role in this is quite complex. Are other countries or the UN expected to get involved? Oh, they've been very vocal so far. There have been communications, public communications by the EU, the, the UN, uh, individual countries, in, including the Biden administration in the United States, 
calling as they do for both sides to show restraint, but also specifically tying these recent clashes to this controversy in Sheikh Jarrah. The State Department released a statement that that really said that was an unhelpful, unhelpful uh, situation. Israel should be very cautious about uh, proving the evictions of Palestinians who have lived in these properties for for uh, decades now. Why is this all coming to a head now? Wasn't there always like this tension? The tension between East Jerusalemites and the rest of Israel, it it kind of ebbs and flows. And I think in this case, the confluence of other circumstances, the controversy in Sheikh Jarrah, the the end of the pandemic that allows people to be out more, the canceling of Palestinian elections, which caused a lot of disquiet among Palestinians, it is all sort of timed out to create a moment of particular uh, conflict. And that's why I think we're seeing the degree of violence that is happening and unfortunately uh, we expect to happen at least for another couple of days. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. This story was produced by Lena Mohammed, who also contributed reporting. Later on Monday, tensions took a deadly turn again. Hamas fired rockets at Jerusalem and southern Israel. Israel retaliated with airstrikes against the Gaza Strip, killing at least 20 people, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza. Friday's jobs report was a huge disappointment. There's no other way to say it. I'm Heather Long, an economics correspondent at The Post. The expectation was that we were going to add a million jobs to the economy in April. Instead, we got this report Friday morning that said we only added 266,000 jobs. So a small fraction, barely 25% of what was expected. And the situation was particularly bleak for women. None of the job gains in April happened for women. There were all the job gains were for men. And we actually saw more women dropping out of the labor force. So that means they not only didn't get jobs, but they also stopped looking for work. And this is just a really big sign, yet another blinking red light that we still have a massive childcare problem in this country. Heather spoke with producer Jordan Marie Smith about the growing gender divide in the economy. So why is it so hard for women to find childcare? I mean, even though more places are open right now. It seems like one of the biggest hindrances is getting schools fully reopened. You still have situations like in Washington, D.C., where schools are not planning to be five days a week in person, likely until September. And so families are still having to sort out, even if kids are back on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, or these alternating schedules, two days a week, one week, three days a week, another week. It's just not consistent enough for a lot of families to really be able to plan and really be able to go back full time to work. And right or wrong, the bulk of this responsibility throughout this pandemic has fallen on moms fallen on women. 
We did see the White House acknowledge this. One of President Biden's goals when he first got into office was to get more schools, particularly elementary schools, reopened. Let me be clear. If President Trump and his administration had done their jobs early on with this crisis, American schools would be open and they'd be open safely. And while that has, to some extent, happened, I thought it was really interesting that the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, when she came out to make her remarks, she used this line, it's clear there are people who are not ready and not able to go back into the labor force. Many children are back in school, but not on a regular schedule. And I think that regular schedule is really what's key for a lot of families. Between February and April of 2020, 4.2 million women dropped out of the labor force, in large part due to an unexpected caregiving burden. Heather, what else did the job numbers depict in the Friday report? I call it the great reassessment of work in America. Basically, we've just gone through this really intense year, really intense period. And a lot of people are rethinking their work lives. You know, people are burned out. People want to spend more time with family. People who don't necessarily want to go back to working at at a retail place or at a fast food or at a waitress anymore. They are thinking about maybe shifting to a new career or shifting to something that pays them more, something that allows them more flexibility. At the same time, you have the situation where a lot of companies are reassessing what kind of workers they want. You know, do they're using more robots, they're automating some jobs, they're thinking about if we need as many people in the office versus at home. So there's a reassessment going on on the business side as well. And what all of this means in a big, big, big picture way is, yes, there's obviously lots of we're hiring signs out across the nation. And you hear a lot of bosses complaining, you know, they can't find enough people. But fundamentally, there's also a lot of reassessment of jobs and work in this country. And that doesn't happen overnight. It's going to take probably a few months, if not a year, until people find what they want to do and companies find what their new equilibrium is like. I'm kind of curious about how the COVID-19 vaccines play into this. Are people kind of waiting to go back because they haven't been vaccinated yet? The hope is and the belief is that a lot of people will go back to work once they are vaccinated. And obviously we've seen some encouraging signs of those vaccine rates going up. Uh, But people are not technically fully vaccinated until that two weeks after their second shot. And I think what people forget is this April jobs report was a snapshot of the labor force and and the working conditions in the middle of April. And in the middle of April, a lot of people hadn't had their second shot yet, let alone two weeks after their second shot. So I think you're still seeing a lot of hesitancy. And when I talk to workers, people are still feeling like they can't go back or they don't want to go back to certain jobs yet, that they might be willing to do that later this summer or into the fall. Heather Long is the economics correspondent for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith.
And now here's one more thing from education reporter Hannah Nathanson about a prom and how this year has been hard on teenagers' mental health. So last weekend, I drove to North Carolina to attend the prom for Bassett High School, which is located in Bassett, Virginia. But the prom was being held in North Carolina because the state restrictions in Virginia are too tight right now to allow for the event they wanted to hold. So. A group of parents looked up the rules, saw that they could get a venue with up to 50% capacity in North Carolina, and they drove across the border. And I was there because I wanted to see what that was like. I wanted to see what a pandemic prom was like. And I think the story ended up hitting me a little more emotionally than I had expected initially. Really, the idea began with a parent who doesn't have a child in the senior class. Her daughter graduated a year ago right after the pandemic hit. She didn't get a prom either. But this mom, her name's Sherry Flanagan, she was just looking around at what it had done to sort of their community. And it's a small town in a rural part of Virginia. It's not very well-off area. And it had been really hard on the kids. And she just decided, we got to do something. The school's not going to do anything because they can't really. They're bound by restrictions. And so she leaned on the ladies at her church and she leaned on some other parents. And they all came together. And in six weeks, they raised $10,000 And that's a lot. Again, it's not a well-off area, but people were willing to give for this. And local businesses stepped up. A DJ volunteered to do it for free. It was kind of a a way for the community to be, be one. There have been at least two suicides from high school students in the past sort of half year. And I spent some time with some some kids who were going to this prom, one girl in particular who knew the boy who had died by suicide around Thanksgiving and around the same time, a girl on her swim team also died by suicide. And you know what, this girl, her name's Taylor Joe Gary, um, she and her mom were telling me about what having the event meant to them. And it, it just meant a lot, uh, particularly because they knew there were kids who, you know, weren't able to be there. And that added to sadness, but also an appreciation for being able to have this night. I'm really, really excited. And I feel like this is um, one thing that our community has done that makes me feel like they're really like listening to us and realizing that like, yeah, our senior has really sucked bad. And so (laughs) I feel like, I don't know, it makes me really feel good about our community. On Sunday, I just kind of followed her through. Um, She doesn't like makeup. She's sort of an outdoorsy girl. She likes to go fishing. But, you know, it was her senior prom, so her mom insisted, and they went and they got her hair done, and they got her makeup done professionally. I think it made all of us closer, though, honestly. I know I'm closer with all my friends now. This sort of core group of parents... You know, in addition to fundraising, they met with some student leaders, including some of the kids I interviewed, and just asked them, you know, what do you want? Because we're doing this for you and we want it to be your prom. And apparently, uniformly, the answer that they got was COVID can't be involved. Like, we don't want it to mention COVID. We don't want it to have anything to do with COVID. For one night, we want to just be teenagers at prom. They had 238 kids register in total, and the venue could hold up to 400 people at half capacity. And that's about half of the junior and senior class, I'm told, who signed up. 
It was in this sort of barn-like large structure in the middle of a field, and it was beautiful. It looked like a place where you'd have weddings that had these arched wooden ceilings, chandeliers hanging down. There was a carriage in the corner, like a full-on carriage. There was a balloon arch. Kids came in and walked through velvet rope along a velvet red carpet. The sign of the pandemic was a little bit there, like they'd come in and Sherry and her daughter Lacey were sitting at a table handing out masks and, you know, sort of giving out the rules, which are you have to have your mask on except when you're sitting at your table eating. So the kids would come in and get their temperatures checked and get their masks on if they hadn't brought their own. But after that, it was kind of like just prom. Again, it was exactly what they'd wanted. It wasn't pandemic-y. I see a couple of volunteers at the At first, you know, the way proms are, it was a little awkward. You know, there was like kids on their phones or some kids who didn't know what to do and nobody could figure out like what to do with their hands and the photos and It seemed very familiar to me. But, you know, what didn't seem familiar was like how rapidly it just became this like purely joyous celebration. At this point in my life, what feels normal is the pandemic. I've just gotten used to it. So what felt not normal was seeing normalcy, if that makes sense. Like seeing kids having fun, like seeing a prom, yes, was stunningly odd because we haven't seen large social events. I haven't, you know, attended a thing where people are dressed up in such a long time. And these kids, they they were really appreciating it and appreciating the chance to be together and knowing that it might not happen again for a variety of reasons. The pandemic, kids are going different places in their lives. You know, some of the kids had tragically died and were not there. So it was just this joyous, like, I, I can't even explain it or describe it. I tried to write about it as best I could in the story, but I don't think I'm going to do it justice. It was just the like, kids getting to be kids and getting to be with each other. And it felt exactly what they had said it they hoped it would be like for a little bit there they were just teenagers at a prom together dancing jumping around um the music was pretty loud and it was just so fun to watch i teared up a couple times including during a slow dance i did tear up hannah natenson is an education reporter for the post this story was produced by sabby robinson That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. We have some exciting news to share. Post Reports has been nominated for a Peabody Award for the story we aired last year, The Life of George Floyd. We are honored and humbled to be nominated alongside so many creators that we admire in TV and audio and digital media. If you want to hear our story about George Floyd or the other incredible nominees this year, we'll put a link in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.